right, Acts chapter 21, we want to start in verse 17, and we're going to go to verse 30. If you've found your places in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 17. Now, remember this is, before we start, this is the end of the third missionary journey. Uh, we had followed Paul through Turkey, the Macedonia, Achaia, Ephesus, and then he had to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost and to bring the offering to the, to the poor saints in Jerusalem. So in verse 17, it says, And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified the Lord, and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this, and we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Take them, and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly, and keepest the law. As such in the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took them in, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification, until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. And when the, day, and when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before him in the city Trophimus an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple and forthwith the doors were shut. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come again thanking you, Lord. We humbly come. And Father, we just pray your blessings upon your word, upon the study of your word. Father, may you enlighten us and teach us through your spirit. Father, we thank you for, the, for your grace and your wonder to us every day. Father, may we not forget the benefits or our blessings which you give us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, I thought that um, I would do things a little differently. I don't know how many of you all saw the Facebook post which I made to the group, but if you are writing down notes, there's three questions I want to ask, and then you can, as we go, maybe you can pick up the answer as we go. But I think this will help us in the study of Acts chapter 21. What was the misunderstanding, this is question one, what was the misunderstanding in Acts 21 about? What was Paul's reaction to this misunderstanding? What did Paul's reaction reveal about him? And how fast can you write these questions? <laughs> did you get them all? Okay. Well, what was the second one? Okay, first one, what was the mis misunderstanding in Acts 21? What, second, what was Paul's reaction to this misunderstanding? Number three, what did Paul's reaction reveal about Paul? Now, we, up to this point, again, we had seen Paul. And one of the things that, that we had seen is just it's a remarkable thing to study the character of Paul. Paul is someone who could have very well been proudful, boastful about all the things which he accomplished. Now think about this. As a Pharisee, his credentials were above, far above everybody else's credentials. He was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. 
He was in a very elite sect of Judaism called the Pharisees. He studied under the feet of Gamaliel, which was the most noteworthy and treasured doctor of the law. You know, I mean, you had to be somebody to study under the feet of Gamaliel. And he even said that as far as zeal for the law, that there was no one who had touched him, that he had risen above all his countrymen as far as zeal for the law. Now, after conversion, let's look at Paul's credentials. After conversion, he was visited by Jesus Christ himself. I mean, not just once, but a couple times. Paul was received up into the third heaven. Paul is one of the, the leading people that we see who suffers for the name of Christ. And Paul was given direct revelation. Paul was given the signs of the apostles. And he came in the second place to no apostle. And Paul spearheaded the largest mission campaign that there had ever, I mean, for the whole world. Paul had went out and he spearheaded all of the missions. Now look at all the things he accomplished. Now, Paul, you would think, you know, he could have. He could have been proudful, egotistical, arrogant. I mean, he could have, all the knowledge which Paul had and all of the accomplishments and the experiences and the direct revelation which Paul had, he could have, he could have let that float at his ego. He could have done all that, but we don't see that in Paul. We see Paul is very gentle and he's gracious, just like our Lord Jesus Christ. He was very gentle. And we see the character of Paul is humility. And we've talked about Paul's humility uh, oftentimes up until this point. But now we're going to especially see his humility in what happens here. Uh, the, the name of the, the sermon, I thought about giving it this name, but we see that we are to have humility in success of what God does and have humility in slander of what people do. Humility in success of what God has done and also humility in slander, which is what people will do. So in verse 18... So we know in verse 17, verse 18, that they had come to Jerusalem. In verse 18, in the day following, Paul went in with us. Now us is, you know, we know Luke is the author of Acts. And so he'll come in and out of Paul's life. And when he's in Paul's life, he uses us instead of they. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And in verse um, 18, and the day following, so apparently there was a, an unofficial meeting the day before, and then the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. So the next day, they went in into the church. Now, it doesn't say the other apostles. Now, we, we believe that James is the only apostle here right now at the, this church of Jerusalem, and that James is the son of Alphaeus, he is the brother, he's the half-brother of Jesus. And we know that James was the pastor there at Jerusalem. And in verse 19, uh, Acts 21, verse 19, And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Do you see how he has humility in the success of the ministry we give God all the glory. We give God all the credit. You notice it wasn't Paul's things. It wasn't what Paul had done. It was what God had done in verse 19 through Paul. Now declared particularly, uh, I know that's a kind of interesting word for me to say, but it is in the Greek, it is he went in order of the things. He declared what things God had done. It was a detailed account that of the things which God had done. Now, verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. Yeah, they were praising the Lord for what he had done. But that didn't, that didn't last too long. There's an issue that comes up. 
and said unto them, the elders, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. Now, that thou seest, this in the Greek, it really is, they are reaching out to Paul to collaborate a solution. So it's not a, it's not like a, a, a mockery kind of thing where you say, you know, Paul, look around. No, it's, um, help us see this, Paul. Help us come up with this solution. Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. Did y'all catch that? These Jews, which thousands of them, and what are they all doing there in Jerusalem? Well, it's the Feast of Pentecost. We see a lot of, of Jews, believing Jews and unbelieving Jews, who make their uh, voyage to Jerusalem during the time Passover and Pentecost and, and things of that nature. So we see thousands of these Jews are, are there, but they were zealous of the law. Now, that zealous of the law, it's zealous is a noun in the Greek. So you can say that they were zealots of the law. They weren't just zealous of the law, they were zealots of the law. Now, what is this? How can you have believers zealous of the law? Now, in this is what he's this talking about is those who were zealots with the ceremonial law and towards sanctification. A believer, the, these people had come to Christ. They came and they believed in Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He was buried and that he rose again the third day and that he died as a sacrifice for sin. I don't believe that the believers who were zealous for the law were not believers who, belie who were trusting in the law for righteousness sake. I don't believe you can be a believer and trust in the law for righteousness sake. I believe that is the strictest term of legalist. Now, a person can be legalistic uh, when it comes to sanctification. So I believe that these Jewish believers who were zealous for the law were obeying the law, coming under the customs of the law for sanctification sake, not righteousness sake. Do we all understand that? For consecration. Um, so, though they had believed in Jesus, they did not have all the light given to them yet as Christ being the end of all the law, the moral law, the ceremonial law. Christ is the end. He has uh, fulfilled the whole law. He's the substance of the law, and they all ended with them. Now, as a side note, we do not keep the Ten Commandments for righteousness' sake. You all understand that? We do not go out of our way to obey with fear of penalty the Ten Commandments, even for sanctification's sake. We do not consecrate ourselves to the Ten Commandments. We, we follow the Ten Commandments out of coincidence, not consecration. You know, so I, I want to describe this. So when the, Jesus had fulfilled all the law for righteousness sake. What, what, are, what do we do now? What's the new covenant? It's out of love. The law of love. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and our neighbor as ourself. If you do this, you will fulfill the law. So it is a coincidence that we're fulfilling the law because we love the Lord. And we love what the Lord loves. The Lord loves His law. And so we serve, we, we uh, of course, we don't discard the Ten Commandments, and we uh, still respect them, but we do not point them out as something that you do strictly for consecration's sake or for sanctification's sake. No, you love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, and you rejoice at the grace of the gospel that Jesus has saved you as sinner. That will never be righteous by the law. But we love the Lord and therefore we keep the law. And so I wanted to, to talk about that. Nor do we um, keep the Sabbath. 
as Jesus said that that the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. They, they considered the Sabbath to be like one of their utmost laws that you couldn't break. And they had missed the, the message of what the Sabbath was. But they didn't see that yet. We have to remember the transition that's going on here at this time. Justification by faith was not a new doctrine but it was one that was revealed as a new doctrine. Justification by faith is all throughout the Old Testament. And if you've been with us in Romans, you, you, you know that. That's how was Abraham saved? He was counted righteous because he believed. right? So justification by faith as a doctrine is seen all throughout the Old Testament, but it's not taught, it's not revealed until the New and that the Lord had revealed to Paul the things which were complicated to, to write. And even the other apostles had given credit to Paul. And so really, I mean, yeah, he had written Romans, he had written Galatians, and they probably had not writ, read that yet. But even then, um, this was kind of a, a transition period, and God, God was patient with this transition period. And eventually... Uh, think about the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to the Hebrews about how Christ has fulfilled all the law. Christ is the better. He's better than all those things which they had been observed. I mean, they're zealous for it. And we're getting ready to see that they're, to the zealot, to the, they're zealous to the point of violence. And... Um, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse said this. He said, the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews to tell them to stop being Hebrews. So, we see that all of these believing Jews who were zealous for the law, of the law, we need to understand this was a period of time where traditions are hard to break. And... Um, they were told, now here's another, now, now all of that's fine. All of that's been fine, but look at verse 21. Here's where the issue comes in. And they are informed of thee, who? The believing Jews were informed, were told, that thou teachest all the Jews, the Jews, not the Gentiles, but the Jews. Paul teaches the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. They were informed. Now, probably by the unbelieving Jews, probably by the Jews who were at Ephesus, who had heard the ministry of Paul. Remember, all these Jews were coming together at Jerusalem right now. And so some of these Jews may have recognized Paul, knew who Paul was, and then the, the, they are saying, they are slandering Paul here. Not to, that Paul is teaching the Jews themselves not to forsake Moses, that he's anti-Moses, that he's anti-circumcision. But... What's amazing that we know about Paul so far is Paul, they would not be able to make this charge if they knew the ministry that Paul had had all through Turkey and, and Greece. What, what have we seen Paul do? He goes out of his way to not offend the Jews, doesn't he? He goes, I mean, well, first of all, we see that he already had taken a Nazarite vow in Corinth so as not to offend the Jews. And he had Timothy circumcised before the second missionary journey. And so that doesn't sound like a man who's anti-law to the Jews and anti-Moses and anti-this and anti-that. But the truth does not make for good headlines, does it? We see rumors. We see gossip. Rumors and gossip are usually never based on fact. Rumors and gossip 
should always stop at our ears. They shouldn't progress any longer. They shouldn't go anymore. Rumors and gossip should stop. You know, it was one thing if one person had a misconception about Paul and they misunderstood what Paul was preaching or teaching. That, that's one thing if, if you had to correct one person. But these are thousands. And these Judaizers are talking, or I mean, to me, it, it, either it was a misconception or it was a, just a downright lie. Enemies of Paul who were trying to, to persuade the believing Jews that Paul was anti-Jews, anti-Moses. And so now you've got thousands of people believing this about Paul, not just one. So this seems like an, an uncontrollable wave, a, a force. But we need to understand when it comes to gossip that our words are very powerful and the Lord records them. In Matthew 12, 36, he says, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. That's scary, isn't it? Every idle word which you speak, you'll give an account for in the day of judgment. Rumors and gossip are a big reason why churches are being destroyed and being filled with drama. You know, I am not a big drama person. Um, you can ask my wife, ask my kids. I just, I do not put up with drama. I don't like drama. I, I don't play the game. I don't want to play the game. Some people, that's how they treat drama. They, they start drama just so they can play it. Just so that they can have something to complain about or do. Um, it's like an addiction to them. But if there's drama in the church, you better know someone is being disobedient. If there's drama in the church if there's backbiting, if there's people slandering or um, sowing discord, there's typically someone in the church is being disobedient. Now, the Bible, I mean, it's very, I could have picked a hundred verses to talk about, but I want to, there's a few I want to talk about. Proverbs eleven thirteen says, A talebearer revealeth secrets. A talebearer is somebody who just, is, a past, is somebody who drives this rumor, this gossip, a talebearer, revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. Someone who gossips, what that means is someone who gossips cannot be trusted. 1 Timothy 5.19 Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. There is nothing more that the devil wants to do than to smear a preacher's reputation. And if you carry gossip, if you carry a rumor, a truth that's not been established by two or three witnesses, if you carry that and it's totally untrue, you might be contributing to ruining one of God's people and helping the devil do so. Because the devil wants to destroy preachers and pastors. Anything to, do, to besmirch them. And nowadays, it's even more. I mean, you've got social media. I mean, you see, I mean, you all have seen this. How somebody will be accused of murder or child molestation. I think there was a big one. Uh, and I can't remember the little girl's name. Uh, apparently somebody, this was a few years ago. They were accused of it, and then it spread. It spread all over. Rather, they were innocent or guilty. Everybody just assumed they were guilty. And all this hate on the Internet, all this hate everywhere, it didn't matter. And later, to come to find out, the person was actually innocent. It was too late. It was already out there. Everybody had this perception of them. Now, it's very important against an elder, someone who's a preacher or a pastor, um, to not receive an accusation against them unless it's been established by two or three witnesses. Okay?
I just wanted to make sure I put that out there. Um, Proverbs 26.20. Now, not just me. <laughs> I'm not saying it just for me, but any pastor or preacher. I, uh, I don't, the mama and the Bible put the fear of God in me to never speak anything against the man of God. It's safer for me not to say anything than be right. Because it's a whole lot of danger to be wrong. Um, Proverbs 26.20 says, Where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceaseth. As coals are to burning coals, and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. It just, it makes us sad to see Paul being slandered like this, and then this rumor getting out that's untrue to thousands of people, that he can't stop it. It's out there. He can't go to every individual person and try to plead his case and do this. And I mean, it's out there. Like I said, it'd be different if it were one person. But it, it is spreading, and they're doing it on purpose. And what they're doing on purpose is they are seeking to discredit Paul. And that's what the Jerusalem church is concerned about. They're concerned about the testimony of when they go to evangelize. Do, do all these unbelieving Jews now think that the Christians now hate Moses and the Jews and circumcision and everything? Because they knew they, have, they, they associated Paul with the brethren there in that way. Well, that's what they were concerned about when they asked Paul, Thou seest, brother. We have a situation here and we need to figure out what to do because they need to evangelize to these people here in Jerusalem. So we know that the Judaizers wanted to purposefully discredit Paul. Now Paul did warn, we see it all throughout the scriptures, and that's why I wanted to make that distinction of that they that the believing Jews were taught this, were told this, and not the Gentiles. Because we know that in earlier in Acts chapter 15, and there at Antioch, this has happened once before. Not on the scale that we see it, but we know that in, when Antioch, when Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, if you remember, that there were certain of those of the Pharisees that came from Judea who said that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And then there was no small dispute with these Judaizers who came and was trying to infiltrate the church of Antioch. And then Paul went to the Jerusalem council, if you remember, and then they had all given testimony. Peter gave testimony. Paul and Barnabas gave testimony. And, and, and James finally said, well, let's not put this burden on them. Peter even said, why would we put a yoke of bondage upon the Gentiles that even our fathers were not even able to bear? And so the the decision by James was, let's not bother the Gentiles with the customs of the Jews. The Gentiles do not have to become a Jew to be saved. Except for fornication, meat offered to idols, things strangled, and those things. So, when it comes to the point here, where he is saying in verse 22, what is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. The answer to the first question, what was this about? Nowhere does Paul tell the Jews that it was wrong for them to practice their customs so long as they did not trust in them for salvation or they did not make it a test of fellowship with the brethren and the sisters. That's it. That's all that, that Paul had talked about. Now, if you will with me, turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Now you can see how the teaching of Paul is getting misconstrued, it's getting twisted, it's getting slandered into this awful accusation. But if you, if you listen to Paul, if you understood, and I don't think that's it. I think that's it right there. They didn't want to know what Paul was teaching. They didn't want to know what the truth of the matter was. They just wanted to attack Paul. In chapter 14 of Romans, we won't read the whole 
chapter, but I wanted to, to get the gist of Paul uses this as a weaker brother. Now, when Paul says those who are weak in the faith, that means that they have an issue with liberty. Okay? With liberty in Christ. Now, Paul had taught, and it is true, that Jesus had fulfilled the law, all the ceremonial law, that Christ is a fulfillment. He's the end of the law for righteousness. So, attaching Jewish customs to it is not, some, is not something that makes you righteous or that sanctifies you. It's a tradition. It's a custom which you were brought up doing. Now, those who believe that they must continue that custom, they may be saved, but there's a custom, there's a tradition that they've got to follow because they believe it's a sanctification aspect, then they're called the weaker just because they are not grasping the full liberty which we really do have in Christ. So it's not like a, a slander against them. It's just, that's, I wanted to bring that up. Chapter 14, he says this, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. So the one who is ascribing the dietary law to Christianity is the weaker brother. He doesn't have the same liberty. Let not him that eateth, now here's the lesson, let, him, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. So if you feel like there is a restriction that you must have in your life that other Christians do not feel like they need to have in their life, and it's not sin. Then the person who is less restrictive should not despise the one who is, nor should the one who is more restrictive judge the one who's not. Because it is God who has received him. Who am I to judge who God has received? If the Lord has received my brother, so should I. It does not mean that I'm going to do the same thing. There's something that we need to understand. There is being fixed and being flexible. Being fixed, we're fixed in core doctrine. You will never see your Lord by his grace... We should not compromise doctrine, truth, the core of the doctrine. There is no compromising. There's no flexibility in it. But where there are gray areas, we should be a little more flexible. Understanding, well, you know what? They may have been raised to, under, to, to think that they need to do that. And that's fine. I love you. And so not only do you need to understand your brothers and sisters who have either less liberty or more liberty, but in verse uh, I'm almost there. Verse, uh, where is it? 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So not only are we to understand with love and compassion and mercy somebody's either restriction or non-restriction, as long as it's not sin, but let us go out of the way not to make it an issue for them by either being too liberated in front of them or too restricted in front of them. So who are we that, and it says, who are you that judges another man's servant? And so that's what the Romans 14, now that's going to come in big when we start talking about the, what Paul actually did. Now, again, Paul never taught against those things. If the Jewish brethren had to have those things in their life, as long as they didn't trust in them for righteousness or for fellowship's sake and sanctification, then Paul had no issue. He actually says that there's a condition where you have weaker brethren. But they're still brethren. They're still saved. 
Now, one more time, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want you to see this. Um, because this goes into what the issue was. And so we see what the Jews were told by a rumor and gossip, but what did Paul actually do? 1 Corinthians chapter 9. What was Paul actually doing? Look at verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. He says, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. Here's Paul's attitude. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, so he didn't become a heathen, that I might gain them that are without law. Now verse 22, to the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. This was Paul. Paul was not restricting any Jews from loving the law, loving what they did at all. Actually, to not offend the Jews, Paul said he became as weak. He became as one who was dependent on the dietary law. And actually, we see this right here. This is the plan that they come up with. Now, I want us to see, in verse 22, it's, what are we going to do? I don't think they were asking, Paul, is this true what they're saying? I don't think they are. I think they know better than that. Because Paul, this is the second time Paul's given an account to Jerusalem of what all God had done through the ministry. But I think what they're saying here, like again, thou seest, he, they are asking him to help us with this issue. What is it there for? This multitude's going to come together. And they're going to hear you're here. So the elders... Uh, suggest this. This is not a command, it's a suggestion. Do therefore this that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them, that's the Nazarite vow. Take them, or them take, and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them. Now, uh, some of the uh, translations will say that Paul took on the charge of this purification, this Nazarite vow, because the Nazarite vow wasn't just a Nazarite vow and that was it. You had to give sacrifices at the end of this vow, the accomplishment of this vow, it was expensive. Because you had to pay for sacrifices, you had to pay for unleavened bread, you had to, you had to provide a drink offering, you had to provide uh, at the end of this vow, okay, I'll go ahead and tell you now, at the end of the vow, they had to present themselves at the end of the days of the purification before the tabernacle, shave their heads, and then they brought Unleavened bread, they brought um, unleavened uh, cakes with oil on them. They had to bring a lamb for a burnt offering, a ewe lamb for a sin offering, and a ram for a peace offering. And then they had to take their hair and then uh, throw it into the altar fire. Uh, now it was the priest that did this. It, they didn't do it themselves. It was the priest who administered the sacrifices. So all of this became expensive. But... It could also mean, in verse 24, just to the expense of whatever it is of the vow itself, to take upon this purification process, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that these, those things, whereof they were informed concerning thee, are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. So they wanted to say that pictures... Are speak thousands, or pictures speak more than words, right? Your actions talk louder than your words. So now in verse 25, and as touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing. We've already talked about that. Save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men. So this was the answer number two. What did Paul do? Paul humbly and quietly 
did what he was asked to do here. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. The priest was to make an offering. An Nazarite vow could be a man or a woman in a time, it was a voluntarily, a volunteering vow. And they, you know that they were to abstain from cutting their hair, no, nothing of the grape, no wine, no grape juice, no vinegar. They couldn't be near any dead bodies. And so, um, and we saw Paul already take this vow once in Corinth. In verse 27, and when the days, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, Ephesus, where had Paul been the last three years? Ephesus. When they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. So it seemed like a good plan, but it did not work. But here's the thing, as I don't want us to walk away from, is that at no point did Paul observe this Nazarite vow against his conscience. At no point did Paul feel like that he is putting on a show for any other reason. This was a sacred, solemn, holy vow that which the Jews did and if you get into the history of that you kind of see why it was very like a priest vow but a priest um, they only had these vows when during their administration of the priesthood but so the people could feel closer to God that all the people could participate in this solemn vow this Nazarite vow it's a temporary vow in which they did Paul was not compromising truth for the sake of unity. This was the, this was the, what they, what the church wanted. Look, you have all these Jews. We need to be unified. Remember, that was Paul's desire. Not only to deliver the relief to the Jerusalem saints, but what he wanted to do. He also wanted to unify the Gentiles and the Jews. This is a Gentile offering to the Jewish church there. So Paul's desire was the same as the church's desire is we need to get this settled. We need to get this straightened out. There's these gossipers, these talebearers, these rumors. They're wreaking havoc. Thousands of Jews believe that you hate us, hate Moses, hate the law, and everything. So Paul agrees, yes, that this is going to go towards a demonstration of that all of these rumors are false, but Paul did not do this against his conscience, nor did he compromise truth for unity's sake. We see so many churches out there today who's compromising truth so that way that they can bring in all these other denominations and make one big economical force to be reckoned with. And we are not to compromise truth. Um, we're to be compassionate, but not compromise. Paul did not violate all the doctrine which he had said. We're justified by faith without works. It's by grace are you saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul preached. And he preached that to the Ephesians. The, I mean, that was in Ephesians. Well... Some will say that Paul violated his own conscience, but he did not. Because later on in chapter 24, we see Paul say, and so far up until this point, I have not violated my conscience towards man or towards God. Paul never uh, violated his own conscience. Now, the answer is Paul humbly said yes, and he participated in the vow. That's how Paul reacted. He was about church unity. That was his desire. Uh, even in Corinthians, he said, I hear there are contentions among you. And where there is contention, that there's division. And where this is at, there's pride. But he says that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. The Jews which are of Asia were of, we know that they were no friend of Paul's in verse 27. Verse 28, they cried out of men of Israel to help. 
This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law in this place, and further brought Greeks and into the temple, and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus, an Ephesian, if you underline, whom they supposed. They didn't see Greeks or Gentiles entering into the temple. They supposed they had because they were hanging out together earlier. This is jumping to conclusions. Jumping to conclusions is also throughout the word of God as something that we should avoid to do as God's people. Jumping to a conclusion is unwarranted assumptions based on limited information. Like if somebody doesn't smile at you, you just assume they're hateful or they hate you. You're making an assumption. You're jumping to a conclusion. Now, how do you take that one jump to conclusion and ruin somebody with it? You tell somebody. And then that somebody tells somebody. And then that somebody tells somebody. And then that somebody tells somebody. At the beginning of rumors and gossip, being a talebearer, being one who sows discord, there's typically someone who has jumped to conclusions. Or it's an outright lie. It's a vicious lie against somebody else. And they want to spread it. When we pass gossip, you are just hopping on the bandwagon of somebody's jump to conclusion. If there's no facts, if there's nothing to support it, let's not continue. We stop it right there. And they dragged Paul there. In verse 30, And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. They had their minds made up. No matter what Paul did or said, they had their minds made up because people who contribute or are in gossip and rumors and seeking to violently destroy people, they don't even want to know what the truth is. They want to fuel what they already believe is true, even if it's not true. So, the Jews were like, okay, we believe you. We, uh, the the, the uh, unbelieving Jews, they say that, okay, this Paul, apparently he hates the law, verse 28, hates his place, hates all the people. And further, he's bringing Gentiles with him into the temple. You were not permitted as a Gentile to go into the courts, in the inner courts of the temple. You were not permitted. You could stay on the outside edge of the court, the Gentile court. In conclusion, gossip is spreading someone's jump to a conclusion. Or it was a generated from a vicious lie. Paul's humility is seen clear throughout all of this passage. He was humble before God. He gave God all the glory for the ministry. He was humble before other believers and agreed to take on the Nazarite vow for a better perception, for unity. And like I said at the beginning, the lesson is, is humility, have humility in success, as Paul did. But also have humility in slander. Paul kept his cool. He did not do anything that would have besmirched his testimony or the church's testimony. I can't help what other lies people believe about me, but I can help what I do. Paul couldn't stop this giant wave of misinformation. So he humbly obeyed and he tried to, to turn the tide of what they believed. Quietly and sincerely, Paul followed the church's advice. He had humility and character, love for the Lord and unity. And I tell you, this... Uh, I love this lesson tonight because we love Paul. <laughs> we love Paul. We've been with him all this time. And it's just an awful thing. Paul knew he was going to suffer in Jerusalem. 
But I bet he didn't, he didn't think it was going to be like this, where it was just slander, misinformation, and really what, what can you do except put it in the hands of the Lord? If it's out that far and there's nothing you can do, all you can do is continue to serve and love the Lord and love each other. Don't let people wreck your love for others. Don't. Satan wants to attack. He attacks through discouragement. He attacks through gossip, through misinformation. And before you receive an accusation, and before you especially, you, hopefully you don't carry on like a, a torch that information. Let's get to the truth of it. Let's get to the truth of the matter. And love covers a multitude of sins. It really does. If we love one another and we hear something evil against our brother or sister, go directly to them or go directly to who told you or, or whatever you need to do out of love. If it were against your child, um, would you continue the gossip? No, because you love your child. We shouldn't continue it if we love each other. We should get to the heart of the matter. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this day, this study. Lord, thank you for the testimony which Paul gave and of his humility. Lord, he knew that you were on your throne and that all things are by your design, your power. Father, and to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we should rejoice, Father, if we are persecuted or spoken falsely against for your name's sake. Father, for we know that we love you and we thank you, Father, for just all your blessings of life, for the purpose you've given us in this life to serve you. And Father, how we have no fear of tomorrow. We know you're on your throne. You know, we know that one of these days we'll be raised again from the dead and we will be forever with you. Oh, Father, what, what a glory. Lord, at this small time that we're here now, Father, may we just be mindful of our own actions and what we hear and what we see. Father, may, may we be slow to speak and swift to hear. Father, may we, may we receive instruction as people who are wise and not a fool who gets upset or offended at every little thing. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for your lessons that you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.